We don't know the contrast, just as we don't know the contrast voluntary and voluntary. We don't know the contrast organic. All right, folks, we're back. Meditations in Molotovs. I am your host, Vincent Emanuele. You are listening to the Progressive Radio Network, where you could find us every Monday at 1 p.m. Central Time. All right, I'm going to jump straight into it because I had recently spoke to Dar Jamail just a couple days ago. Uh, the interview will span, I think, the majority of the program, if not the whole program. So I'm going to give you a quick intro, and if I have time, I'll mention a couple things after the interview. If I don't, I will talk to you next Monday where you could find us here on the Progressive Radio Network once again at 1 p.m. Central Time. So on today's show, I'll be speaking with Truthout.org's top environmental journalist, uh, my friend Dar Jamail. I first met Dar back in 2007 when I was working at the time with the anti-war movement, primarily Veterans for Peace and Iraq Veterans Against the War. And Dar at that time was writing a book on GI resistance after uh, returning from Iraq, where he was an unembedded reporter, uh, one of the few from the United States. In any case, our conversation spans a whole wide range of topics, but really focuses in on climate change and, uh, and abrupt climate change, to be more specific. I hope you enjoy the conversation, and I think you'll learn a lot from Dar, not just about what's happening in the world at large or what's happening with the environment, but also uh, just how to behave as a human being uh, at a time like this. And while we may have slight disagreements about how maybe people should focus their energies or where they could and how effective it can be, the fact remains there are very few people willing to speak the, I think, unbridled truth about what's happening with the environment because it is quite scary. In any case, Dar Jamail has been published, as I mentioned, in Truthout as their top reporter, climate reporter, uh, Interpress Service, Tom Dispatch, the Sunday Herald in Scotland, the Guardian, the Nation, the Independent, Al Jazeera, and many others. Uh, his writings have been translated into over a half dozen languages, and he has appeared on radio and television as well as a reporter for Democracy Now!, Al Jazeera, and the BBC, NPR, and various other outlets. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Dar Jamal. You, let me. I'll give a little bit of a backstory. So I, of course, came about your work through Iraq Veterans Against the War, your writings and journalistic work from Iraq. Can you talk to people a little bit about just what, you know, what? how did you get involved with that and how did you get to sort of where you are today now writing primarily about ecological collapse? Well, the short version of it, just to give a few broad brushstrokes, is that I became politicized a bit later in life. Uh, I was in my early 30s, really, when I really started waking up and realizing I live in the belly of the most brutal, uh, vicious, deadliest empires uh, in history. And uh realized at the time, you know, information is a key component of how the empire functions and gets away with it and keeps its masses asleep. And uh, that was right around the time during the lead up to the Iraq war. And so I threw myself into the war as a, an unembedded journalist and started writing about what was happening. And it felt like that was what I could do to help uh, resist uh, the 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 ongoing march of empire. And that turned into a 
career in journalism that continues to this day, and I covered the war extremely heavily, covered veterans resistance, which is how we met, and then uh, has shifted over to the environment, um, because prior to going to Iraq, I was living in Alaska since 1996, and um, spending all my time that I could up in the mountains and in the Alaska range, and was um, you know, in the mid-90s, saw firsthand, wow, climate change is happening abruptly. Uh, but then, you know, went the war out for a lot of years. And then after after that, I came back around to the environment and, and climate change. And that's what I've been covering ever since then. So basically from like 2010, 2011 onwards, I've been uh, focused almost primarily on um, human-caused climate disruption. And because it's um, even though there's so many massive stories happening today and too much to keep up with, obviously I think the one that eclipses, not I think, I know that eclipses all of them is uh, abrupt climate change. And so that's been my, my focus, and now I'm working on a book about it in addition to my reporting for Truth Out about it. Oh, that's exciting to hear. That's that's awesome. When, uh, when are you expecting the book to come out? I know that's a tough question. Uh, it'll be the middle of uh, probably about a year from now. It's going to be published with the new press, but I am right smack in the middle of uh, traveling and doing research and writing chapters. So it's it's still a ways out in the future. Where are you uh, traveling for the book, for the research? Well, I spent all last summer in going around Alaska from the heights of Denali out to St. Paul Island and the Pribilofs to a lot of places in between. Um, and then... I spent um, uh, earlier this year, I just got back a few weeks ago from a big trip to Oceania. So I went to Australia and the Great Barrier Reef and Guam and other places out in that neck of the woods doing research on warming oceans. And then uh, later on this year, I will be going to the Amazon and Greenland and, and other places. So it's, it's going to be a pretty extensively traveled and researched book. Now, I think a lot of people are intimidated by some of this when we talk about climate change and, and uh, ecological devastation. You, you, do you have a scientific background? Some... I do not. No, okay. I, I don't, but I just uh, make sure I interview really good scientists. <laughs> <laughs> so, in other words, I mean, I'm, I guess part of what I would like to do is to it's sort of encourage people to not be so intimidated by this. I don't know if you get this because of, I don't know how much you're traveling and so on, you're getting a chance just to talk with folks. But obviously a lot of what I'm doing is local community organizing, but then other forms of organizing too. And a lot of times it, it's like we've crossed this this threshold now where I remember years ago trying to tell people, like when I was first getting turned on to Derek Jensen's work and other people like Guy McPherson, it was like I would go to people and they would look at me like I was crazy what I was telling them. Now, however, it's like when I talk to people, they're like, yeah, man, it, we're fucked, and that's just it. And it, I mean, I get that more than anything these days. Do you know what I mean? It's almost mm-hmm. like we've we, we've stepped so quickly from, at least when I first got engaged and became uh, aware of what was happening environmentally, it was very hard to convince friends and family and others. And this is just anecdotally speaking, but I'm just kind of wondering what you think about that. That's, that's really interesting, um, and I've seen that shift, too, of people kind of not really getting how far along we are to then kind of defaulting into that, yeah, it's, it's, it's game over. And while there's so much we could talk about around that, um, a lot of it doesn't really even have much to do with what's happening to the planet, you know, from a climate 
disruption perspective. But um, we are, the short version of it is we are extremely far along in abrupt climate change and much, much further along than I think most people realize. Uh, you know, all these predictions about, you know, amazing things that are going to be happening by 2050 or 2100, I would argue that a lot of those are already happening right now. So when we talk about the loss of coral, we talk about the loss of the Great Barrier Reef, we talk about, you know, all these things that have been projected to happen somewhere decades out in the future, I would argue that they're happening right now. Um, that those, we need to we need to reframe our thinking and get that we are in the thick of it right now, and things are only continuing to speed up, and that's where we have to bring in the discussion about nonlinear change and exponential change, and that's a difficult thing for people to get their heads around. We're not talking about uh, a, a graph that's sloping upwards. We're talking about something that's going straight up at the pace of about a rocket because there's so many positive feedback loops in action now. But then that also brings to the fore, how do we deal with that psychologically, intellectually, emotionally, spiritually? And, and I think that that is that's going to now be a component of my book because I've had to learn how to deal with that, reporting on this every month for Truth Out, doing my dispatches, which every time I do one, I feel like I get punched in the gut. And I imagine my readers probably have a similar experience. I know they do. I, I get a lot of that feedback. And, and saying that, like, hey, man, we're screwed. It's over. Like, what do we do? And and that's where I've had to really dig deep and, and, and kind of reframe my thinking of it and, and, and do a lot of my own work around the grief that comes with living in these times, uh, you know, compounded by the fact that we have a Trump administration that's coming in and just chopping our, our legs out from under us as we speak. You know, let's, let's slash the EPA. Let's, in fact, let's try to do away with the EPA altogether. Let's slash the parks budget. Let's, let's let them start fracking and mining and drilling everywhere now. You know, it's like we were already in extremely bad shape, and now it's like let's just stomp on the gas. As we're already off the cliff, now let's, like, find a sixth gear and stomp on the gas mm-hmm. and go even faster. And that's, that's really really hard thing to take in given that we're already in mass we're already in the sixth mass extinction things are going away so fast we can hardly even keep up and i think we it calls on each of us now to dig deep and find a way okay like we have limited time left a lot of species have limited time time left and how are we going to be in this new era that we live in on the planet and and that's, some, that's a very individualized question. And, and for me, it means spending as much time as I can now out on the planet. And I feel very fortunate that I'm working on a book that's taking me to all these places so I can do that. And I was just at the Great Barrier Reef, which for me, um, looking at what's happening, like I know that may well be the last time I get to go chance, uh, get a chance to go see this the single largest coral ecosystem on the planet. And I was acutely aware of that when I was there. And I said goodbye to it, you know, and that was an emotional experience. I mean, I get emotional talking about it because this is the single largest coral ecosystem on the planet that's dying before our very eyes. And I got to go see it and take pictures of it and be out there with a couple of experts and understand I am watching this thing go away. And, and yet what a magnificent opportunity to get to go see it and experience it. Because if I had a kid right now, that kid would not get to go see this thing. That kid would just get to hear my stories about it. And I feel that we're also morally obliged to go do that and be with the planet while it's undergoing these changes. And that's where, you know, you and I have 
are, are you know, we've we've both read Derek Jensen, we've both read Guy McPherson, and, and McPherson specifically talks about us being in like a hospice situation. And I think with the planet, and I think that that's a, a really good analogy. Do you think that some of your experiences with the war and war reporting and all that sort of paved the way for this? I mean, just in terms of being able to deal with some really heavy, dark shit, for lack of a better term. It I guess. did. It, it did, because I, you know, I saw the worst of humanity. I mean, I saw, you know, this is this is humanity at, at the point of total failure of the human spirit, like when we degrade into barbarism against each other. And, and it did help me understand, um, you know, yeah, this, that kind of depravity and that, those, those horrific results. Like after having seen all of that, in a way it has made it easier for me to go with, you know, and I've been around death and I've seen death, a lot of death and I've seen it and, and I've seen, you know, these horrible aspects of that. And I think that, that prepared me for going out now and being with the planet in a way where, you know, it's like a slow motion death and I have time to say goodbye and it can be a gentle experience and it can also be, um, enlightening and, and it, it can put me that much more in touch with life that is still here and how precious that is, you know, and that we, we do, since it is kind of a slow motion death, um, we can go be a lot more aware and, and fully present with that and really open our hearts to that and take in what that means. And then it, it deepens all my experiences with, with people that I'm around now. And I know that all of our time is limited. And the question is, how are we going to spend that time? And even more importantly, how are we going to be with each other? And I mean, be with a capital, capital B, um, you know, are, am I going to be present for the people that I love and care about? Am I going to understand that, you know, we have a very finite amount of time and we don't know how much time that is. So, so I want to make sure I spend it the right way. And that, that means, you know, I want to make sure that what I do counts. I want to make sure that what I do is from the heart. And I'm not talking about basing that on results because I do feel like, you know, we're not going to stop what's happening. We lost this war a long time ago. We're now living in the aftermath. And so how do, how are we going to choose to spend that time and what can I do to help in those circumstances. And, you know, I, I think I would finish this train of thought with, you know, I was, I was in a writer's residency a little over a year ago and I wrote up the introduction of this book to try to figure out how to write the book. And the introduction's beautiful and simultaneously apocalyptic. And, you know, it's like, look, look at all these trends. Like we, we've gone off the cliff, like, you know, life is going away as we know it. And, and, um, I, I went into a depression and I had a really good friend there who taught meditation classes. He's a Zen Buddhist and he taught meditation classes to the town every week. And I had a talk with him and I said, look, Nick, um, it's over. It's over. Like, I, I just, what's the point? And he said, you know what? You might be right. It, it, it probably is. He said, but you know, you need to think about it this way. If there's one microbe somewhere out in the middle of the Amazon rainforest that gets, 10 more minutes of life and 10 more minutes, 10 more minutes of chance of life as, and that's the sum total result of all of your efforts Then all of your efforts are worth it. And to think about that a little bit different ways, if you're sitting with someone in hospice, someone that you love and you, you know, they're in the last minutes of their life 
and then you get 10 extra minutes. Like it goes on 10 extra minutes than you expected it to go. That's priceless. And you would be so deeply grateful for that extra 10 minutes. And, and I feel like that's a way to kind of reframe our work and the results of our work and, and, and what might happen as a result of it. So the first question I'm thinking of as I'm listening to you talk is where did you develop this deep green vision is the best way I would put it. I'm, I mean, that sounds like so almost like a sloganeering, but I'm trying not to do that. I mean, I'm really, that, that was the first time I had heard that term was, was Jensen's work. And I'm thinking of McPherson's mm-hmm. work as well. And I'm wondering how did that develop and did it develop quickly? And cause I'm also thinking of like this gap. So to bring this way back down to say my local day to day level, there's the the largest sand dune. I live right on Lake Michigan um, in a city called Michigan City, Indiana. And we have the great dunes and the dunes National Lakeshore right next to, of course, all of these steel mills and so on. The last sort of untouched dune in, in our county and the tallest dune in our county, the, uh, the park board in the city government now wants to put an amusement park on top of this with zip lines and all kinds of shit. And we came to the to the meeting last night and organizers, local folks, and, and there was such a gap between, you know, I think, you know, our friend Sergio, he was there and, mm-hmm. and another mm-hmm. friend of ours was there and, and they're sort of giving this deep green perspective. And then there was this woman who stood up from the uh, DNR and then I think she said she used to work for the EPA and she was like, I think you guys are being a little too apocalyptic. I think you guys are being a little too negative. And I, I, I guess I wonder... Do you think, well, my first question is, I guess, on a deeper level, where did that deep green vision come from? And maybe I should just leave that there. But my second kind of question was, do do you think it's even worth trying to bridge that gap with people? Or is it just like at this point, you know what, that's fine. You can think however you want to think. I need to sort of gather with people who do share this worldview and sort of move forward with them. Great questions. I'll take the second one first because it's the easiest. Um, I, 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 I would agree with the last statement that you just made, that I think time is so short and our, the energy that we have to do our work is, is, is finite and limited. And how do, how do I want to choose that? And there's a giant section of the population now that is in some form of denial. And I don't mean just the people like the climate change denialists, but I mean, even on the left, I think the majority of the so-called left in this country don't understand where we really are, how far along we are, both politically in this country, as far as how far into fascism we are and where this is probably going, as well as ecologically, that they don't really get that we're off the cliff. You know, we've set in motion changes, circumstances, and runaway feedback loops that cannot be changed, tens and dozens of them. And they don't really get, you know, we are in the sixth mass extinction. You know, this is gonna this is gonna go very, very deep and and you know, humans might not make it out of this. And I think most people don't get that. And so the time and energy it would take to try to get all those people up to speed, like, you know, like I have work to do. Like I just I just don't and I need to I need to largely be around folks that really understand what's happening so that we can do our work, you know, as as as, as deeply as we can. And then the first part of that the first question is I, it was a combination of a lot of things that really brought me into this perspective. Um, you know, reading Derek Jensen's work, 
reading Guy McPherson's to kind of get up to speed on how far along we are ecologically. And I'd already been reading all the scientific reports, but basically just connecting all the dots and looking at it from a macro vision. But one of the things that really did it was as a result of my Iraq work, I had pretty severe PTSD and I got turned on to a, a woman named Joanna Macy who does grief work is, is a way to kind of oversimplify what she does. But she is this, um, she's a systems theorist, Buddhist, deep ecologist who is a master at bringing people together uh, who are working on the front lines, so authors, activists, vets, writers, photographers, you name it, who are seeing what's happening and having our hearts broken and need help dealing with the levels of grief that come up from watching what's happening to the planet. And she sets has these gatherings and people come together for X amount of time and do that kind of deep work and it all comes out and it's witnessed and we go through it as a small community and then we're free of it and then we can breathe again and our hearts stay open and we can keep doing our work so that's that's the very very short um elevator talk version of of that but i did that work with her in 06 and i um went away from it for a while but recently because of my book I found that I have to have that work a constant presence in my life to stay open. And so I am actively, yeah, I'm actively staying very, very close to that work. And it doesn't even necessarily mean doing it directly with Joanna Macy, but there's, you can do that kind of work. There's websites and you can find these gatherings and do that kind of work in places all over the country now. What does that look like for you, say on a day to day? Cause I know you're an avid mountain climber as well. So for me, I like uh, jujitsu and I like going to the gym. So like for my thing, it's mm-hmm. like I have to lift weights. I have to go do cardio and I like doing Brazilian jujitsu. Those are like, that's like my time away from everything else. And it's also a time for me in some ways, sort of like a meditation, especially in jujitsu where you get into this mind state where you're, you're doing these repetitive actions and you're kind of moving and thinking in a different way. It's very cerebral in a lot of ways, but anyway, about yourself, what does that look like for you, say, day to day? Not just, say, spiritually or even physically, what what you're doing. Yeah, because, you know, we're... I, I love hearing about that from, from your perspective, because when we take in all this information and we do the work that we're all looking at, which is basically looking... Main, Joanna calls it maintaining the gaze, like maintaining the gaze of what's happening. And it's it's horrifying, and it's hard, and it's challenging. And so that brings up a ton of energy. And so how do we move that energy? How do we deal with that energy? And so I'm really physical, too. That means, like, I'm going out in the mountains almost every single weekend because I live in the Pacific Northwest, and I'm pretty well situated to be able to do that. Because if I don't do that for a couple of weeks, I get depressed. Like, so I'm going out, and that's, that's, that's moving my body vigorously. That's reconnecting to the planet, maintaining the perspective that you get from doing that. And then it's also, you know, having pretty regular contact, even just by phone with other people that are, are seeing what's happening and doing the work that reconnects and, and processing, processing it, you know, and sometimes calling people and just saying, hey, man, I am completely overwhelmed right now. And then just literally talking about it, you know, and, and uh, that's real, you know, and that kind of, that kind of communication and communion and, and community is, is, you know, there's a disdain for it in mainstream culture. Like, oh, well, you're, you know, you need to pull yourselves up by your bootstraps. And, you know, this whole 
John Wayne, Clint Eastwood mentality. And it's like, you know what? That's the old paradigm. That's the patriarchy. Because the reality is we are human beings living in a time of apocalypse. And, and, and I mean that both system failure apocalypse as well as apocalypse, meaning the, the veil being pulled back, the literal definition of the word. And, and we are seeing what's happening now, and, and nobody really has a chance to not see it because we're so far along and it's so blatant. And so we need, we need to not do that alone. Because I spend a lot of my time, even through all my Iraq work, being the lone wolf. You know, I'm I'm embedded journalist and doing this on my own. And I had a point where, like, I, I can't do that anymore. The work's gotten too intense at this point that, you know, we need we need tribe. We need brothers and sisters around us. If we're going to seriously stay engaged at the work at the level that we need to stay engaged, we can't do this alone. And that was a, that was a big lesson that I learned, and I... I hope that other folks are getting that memo too, because otherwise you're just going to burn out and get depressed and stop doing the work. Absolutely, and or, or turn to some terrible things as well. I mean, I've had some, yeah, great friends. You know, drugs, alcohol, suicide, all the rest. Mm-hmm. I'm sure the same for you. Um, yeah. What, you know, I'm thinking about from the perspective of of where I'm at which is much different than the Pacific Northwest. So I've, and I've talked to Derek a lot about this just in private communications over the years and trying to another gap, I guess that, that I've always had a hard time bridging is working with communities that are like the city I live in, for instance, 28.9% of the city lives under the federal uh, poverty line. And you know how absurdly low that is. So if -hmm. you, if you double that, even you know, you're looking at probably 50 to 60% of the city that I live in lives on lives in poverty. Uh, one third of the city is black. Uh, about 8% of the city is Latino and Hispanic. And, and it, it's hard to, it is sometimes hard to bridge the gap between the human suffering and the organizing and so forth that takes place in that context. And then the organizing and so forth that would take place in say uh, a militant resistance uh, or even an effective uh, nonviolent resistance uh, to say uh, climate change, environmental degradation, and so on. I mean, is that? I mean, I know you're in a different context, and from where you live and the work you're doing, I'm assuming you're not spending a ton of time, say, in urban environments and so forth. But is that something that you think about or get asked about from other folks as well? Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, I I think you know what what that looks like of of how we do our work and have community and take care of ourselves and, and try to work within a tribe of people doing what we do. I, that's going to look different everywhere that we are for sure. And, 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 you know, obviously people living in an environment like what you just described in such an intense economic situation, it's urban, you know, the sufferings like right in front of your, the human sufferings right in front of your face on a daily basis. I mean, that's going to look very, very differently, obviously than, and how I deal with it out here. I mean, I literally live in a solar-powered house in the middle of the woods by myself. Um, so, obviously, that's going to vary. I mean, do you quite feel do you feel a, like an alien when you come to urban environments? Then, because my friends who live in say the environment that you live in, I mean, I'm usually in awe. I mean, I will walk around when I go visit my friends in Shasta, in Northern California, and other areas. I mean, I'll, I'll just kind of walk around for the first few days in awe because. I am brought back to this uh, totally different environment than the one in which I was born and raised and the one in which I live and work in now. Obviously, I think it's much more healthy probably to be 
in your environment for many reasons. But yeah, what do what do you? I mean, wh- how do you react when you even get into a, an urban environment like this? Yeah, I've you know, I mean, I I, I don't think I could live in a city. Um, I I am you know big big nature person and um i am feel extremely fortunate i mean i live really simply i i live really close to the earth i i um and that's why i'm able to live out where i live um plus having an online job with truth out um which i'm extremely grateful for and i go into cities and i it's it's inhuman to me i mean it's 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 really really hard i mean and plus a lot of the writing and stories I've done about noise pollution, not even talking about uh, physical pollution, but, but noise pollution of, of what that does to us and what that does to our bodies and the involuntary reflexes and such. I mean, that alone, not even to talk about traffic and, and, and you know, other dangers and the economic hardships and all of that, it's smashing you in the face every day that you're there. I mean, it's, Cities are extremely challenging places to live, and my hat is off to people that are living in them and doing the work there, and 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 you know doing justice work and and uh, taking care of themselves and trying to take care of their communities. I mean, I because I, I don't know if I could do it, you know, and so I really like I, I bow to the people doing it because they're I think in, in 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 a lot of senses stronger than me to be able to do that in the middle of a city. I mean, I have it easy. I feel like by comparison, I'm. A, in my house, there's deer walking through, you know, right outside my window and owls at night. And, you know, yeah, I'm, I'm, and that's how I deal with basically writing about the apocalypse because, you know, I live in this place where I'm, I'm just smothered by nature. And that's, I think, what helps it make it possible for me to keep doing my work because I can just literally, and I do a lot of the time, just step outside and take a deep breath and look at the trees when, while I'm writing about how, you know, there might be not might not be many forests left on the planet by 2100 i mean that's not out of the realm of possibility i think i'm going to go look at some trees while i can right well and that's my way of dealing with it in this context is i got lucky and found a one bedroom apartment that's uh, like 50 yards from lake michigan so this landlord just wanted to rent the place out and got tired of renting it back and forth to people for too much money so he dropped the price down and I moved in there five years ago and I've been there ever since, but it's sort of detached from the city a little bit. It's 50 yards from the lake. So I can go down and walk by the lake and walk through the sand dunes. And that's like my little escape. But then, you know, it's cra- as crazy as it is. I think about this, you know, compared to being say out West and yeah, as soon as I turn around, man, there's a, there's a coal, half coal fired, half natural gas fired power plant, you know, that's on the other side of town. Yeah. And uh, an Indiana state maximum security prison that's in our city, uh, the only place where they execute people in the state. And we also have a casino in our city. And I don't know if you read Chris Chris Hedges' latest uh, article, but I'll tell you what, it was his latest article was basically a description, could have been a description of uh, the problems that we face here. I mean, between the opioid crisis and gambling addiction and other problems, and as I mentioned earlier, poverty and segregation, I mean, it's... uh, it's a very intense area, man. I mean, it's, you know, Sergio and I decided that we were going to open up a community space. So we found this storefront and uh, we're going to call it park. It's politics, art, roots, and culture. And yeah, we're just going to basically try and experiment. I mean, in a place like this where a lot of people keep telling us, Hey, you know, there's not much that's going to happen. There's not a lot of people who are interested in these issues. You know, we've already gathered a pretty good crew of folks who I think are, 
really, really solid activists with good values. And, you know, I think there's a, there's, with areas like this in the Rust Belt and these deindustrialized areas, there's so much despair, man. I mean, these, you know, for generations, or at least for two generations, you know, people had seen these areas at, at least as an economic boon. So it's like, yeah, you've got the pollution. Yeah, you've got all these other problems maybe, but at least, you know, you can send your kids to college or you can buy a home or you can get a decent job and only one parent has to work and all the rest. And as you know, those days are long, long gone. And what is left mm -hmm. in its aftermath is uh, like this wake of destruction and despair. So, you know, anyway, just, just to give you kind of a heads up of what, what we've kind of been up to and what we've been thinking about. I mean, we, I couldn't, I mean, I have so many friends and have done so much work in Chicago over the years. And I was born and raised there before I came to Indiana. And I, when I go back to that city, it's like that for me is like that next level of craziness where I think of Rahm Emanuel and the Chicago political machine and all the sectarianism and all the nonsense. And at least in an area like this, I feel like we can do manageable work where there is still this kind of a sense of a community. People kind of know each other. Um, there's, there is a little more humanity, I would argue, um, than people just walking past each other on the street. You know, the, the storefront that we, that we're renting, uh, the, the homeless slash community center across the street, I just found out is ran by a guy that I went to college with. So it's like little connections like that, that really will help you help us and, and help each other, you know, do some productive things here. So that's, that's kind mm -hmm. of the approach that I've been taking to, to find a, find a manageable way to do this work because trying to stop the empire or trying to stop the next war. I mean, I feel like that is what burnt out a lot of my fellow, uh, anti-war veteran friends and a lot of people I met in the anti-war movement, I mean, after Obama and everything that set in once people realized that his foreign policy was going to be the same and all the rest. I mean, I don't think that you were fooled. I don't think I was, I think there was a lot of people who actually listened to what the guy was saying, but at the same time, you know, I mean, that that those kinds of campaigns or those kinds of objectives, like we're going to stop this war or we're going to dismantle this empire. While I think that we all need to be talking about and working towards things like that, I think it can really burn people out very quickly. Yeah, because if we focus on the results, we're going to we're just going to chronically lose. I mean, you know, in any victories at all that are going to be had are going to be had on a very, very local level. And plus, if we're doing work, I mean, like what, what it sounds like you and Sergio are doing, that just sounds really, really beautiful to me. I mean, because that's going to directly touch people's lives right there where you live. You know, and I, I had a friend when I lived up in Alaska, she was a bit older than me, and she was describing to me a time where she just kind of woke up, you know, in her life and politically and in her heart and just re like looked around like, my God, there's just so much work that needs to be done. This planet's in such rough shape. And she actually wrote Mother Teresa and said, tell me what to do. Like, I just kind of woke up and like, what can I do to help? You know, there's so much that needs to be done. And Mother Teresa actually wrote her back and said, be kind to your neighbor. And I really think that's it. Like, you know, whether your neighbor's a tree, you know, can you help protect some land? That's another thing I do up here. Like, I'm going to, you know, I have this land and, you know, no one's going to cut down these trees, you know, and wildlife on this land is not going to get hunted. It's going to be okay, you know, mm -hmm. and, and then, you know, what, what can I do immediately? And then there's other ways I'm actively involved in my community and I can help people on a one-on-one -on -one basis sometimes. And I think 
Because when we do that, we get, you know, part of it's selfish because, like, we get immediate response. Like, wow, I helped someone. I can see it in their face right now, and that's really gratifying. I know that I did something good today to help another human being. I know that I did something good today to help nature. You know, at least this one little speck of it that, you know, where, that's right where I live. And so, you know, and that's where our victories are going to be had, and, and, and those people are going to benefit from it. And, you know, and it's... And it's, it's, it might sound cliche and cheesy, and it probably is, but that old story that, you know, so many people have heard, but, you know, there's a little girl walking around on the beach, and um, it's it's low tide, and there's all these starfish on the beach out of the water, and she's picking them up one at a time and throwing them in the water. And another guy comes up and sees her doing it and says, wow, you know, what are you doing? Look, there's millions of starfish here. You're not going to get to all of them, it's not going to really make any difference what you're doing. And she picks ones up and throws it in the water and says it will to that one. Right. Right. No, and that, man, that's the kind of stuff that I think people need to hear more of because I, I tell you what too, man, the other thing is this BS stuff on the left. I mean, there's so much ego and career shit and just hollow, you know, politics and all the rest, man. I mean, a lot of the stuff, unfortunately, and I, I say this as someone who tries to encourage everyone to get involved with different movements and so on. But I, I mean, as you know, I mean, the left can be just a, a or whatever we call the left. I mean, it could be a very toxic place. It can also I mean, I've become very disillusioned just over the years now. You know, this is going on 11 years of uh, of doing this work since I got home when I was 22 years old from the Marine Corps, 21. So now it's been 12, 13 years going on. And I, man, I mean, over the years, I have. uh I've come to those conclusions just because of the toxicity of working on the left. I don't know if that's mm -hmm. everyone's experience or if you can relate to that at all. I've very much had that experience and, and had the same, you know, I dove in kind of naively and overly idealistically and then had to learn through the school of hard knocks. But yeah, there's a, there's a lot of corruption and gatekeeping and really nasty stuff in the left. And in a lot of ways, it's just a reflection of, the dominant culture of hierarchy and power over and money making and exploitation. And I mean, yeah, all of that's rampant in a lot of ways across the mainstream, you know, like you say, the so-called left, whatever we call it. I mean, in a lot of ways it feels fraudulent to even call it left um, <laughs> given this topic. And, and, and that's very, very true. And, and, and I'm glad you brought that up because that uh, that's also a response to as we go further and further into the darkness in this country politically and ecologically and economically which we are absolutely doing and it's going to get so so very much worse you know i i talked to joanna macy who i mentioned earlier i did a big interview with her and we published this on truth out um within the last couple of months and uh, i would definitely encourage people to to look that article up and read it and i said you know i said look you know you're you're 87, you're almost 88, like you've been doing this work your whole life and, you know, things are getting so much worse now. And she's effectively let go, too, of any idea that, that we're going to change anything on a broad scale. She, like, gets that we're completely going into the darkness now as well. And she says, you know, it started out, this was the reason, and now this is the primary. It's never been more true now. It's never been more true than it is now, and that is that the main reason I am doing this work is so that when things fall apart, we do not turn against each other. Because you look at where people aren't doing the deep work and aren't having conversations like you and I are having right now, and they're doing exactly what you just said they're doing. They're completely turning against each other. 
It's all about I, 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 me, me, me. Where, you know, where's my power? Where can I get more money? Oh, you're coming into my turf, whatever. And that is the opposite of what we need to be doing. You know, we need to be with the planet. We need to be taking care of stuff that we need to take care of in our own lives. We need to be with the people that we care about and, 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 and keeping our hearts open instead of doing what you just described, because that, that is what's happening. And I think that will get worse as well, you know, and in that way, the left's been eating itself and, and, and kind of causing its own demise and destruction and rendering itself relatively ineffective. And again, that's where I think the solutions are going to be on a very local micro level what can me and maybe even me and just a couple of other people do and again like you know if that if the whole result of that work is that we help a couple of people like if your park center helps a couple of people just get through their day a little bit better and gives them a place to go and meet a couple of other people and just have, then then it's worth it that's how i feel and that's how i feel about this not only the space that i'm sitting in right now but also the the sand dune i mean you should have saw the looks on the faces of these uh, park board folks who uh, they couldn't believe that people cared so much about this sand dune. But I, f- I had figured, you know, I lived next to the sand dune for five years and I hadn't hiked up and down it because from what other folks have told me that just more and more foot traffic on these sand dunes, the more and more erosion is going to take place. So, you know, I appreciate it from a distance. I walk next to it. I will sit down and, and sort of chill out and spend time next to it. And, uh, this, yeah, I mean, in my own little way, this is like my own little sort of war right now. I'm like, there's no way they're going to put an adventure park on top of the sand hill. <laughs> and I know, you know, mm-hmm. to some people, when you're thinking about all of the issues that you just talked about and all the, the death and destruction on a global scale and what we're facing, that sounds so trivial. But to me and to the to the animals and plants and organisms that are that are on that that sand dune, it's it's not trivial at all. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And that's it. Because, you know, if we look at the big picture of all of this stuff, it, it's completely overwhelming and we will shut down. And I mean, we, we have to, I mean, for me, I mean, my job is looking at the macro. I mean, this whole thing with my book is what is happening to the planet. And then I, I can't help but not do that with the, uh, uh, the political situation here at home. I mean, as dark as it is, it's equally absolutely fascinating to watch real unbridled now unbridled and unveiled fascism on the march here at at, at top speed you know and and it's important that we keep track of that and watch what's going on we need to have a clear accurate map of the world that we live in so that we know how to navigate our lives i mean so we have to have that information and it has to be clear and we have to be able to see it and then deal with all of that 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 brings up but, but then with the understanding, like, okay, what, what can I do right now immediately? And then, again, that just, it just keeps bringing us back around to, you know, my own little 5, 10 feet of area, you know, for just kind of use a bit of an analogy on that. You know, what can I do to make this place just a little bit better? And then, you know, and then leave the results up to however they're going to flake out because, you know, we don't ultimately have control over those anyway. We just have control over, like, okay, what's the right action I can take right now? Right. And, you know, you mentioned earlier about this not being a linear process. And this brings me to sort of an, I think, will be an ongoing and never ending question that I'm asking myself, which is, say in a very pr- practical way, say in a very utilitarian way, what what do you think about preparation for the future? So the, that preparation you also mentioned earlier, which I think is a great point. It's going to look different if you're in Michigan City, Indiana, than if you're in Miami, Florida, than if you're in uh 
the Pacific Northwest. Like, what do you think, though, about this concept of, say, preparing for the future? So you have the doomsday preppers. Um, I don't know if that's like the right, if it's even the right way to, to, to phrase it. But there's an element to that preparation that I sort of admire. So it's, I don't know how to say this because I don't want people to just sort of say, all right, look, I'm going to get a bunch of food for my family and I and a bunch of guns and ammunition and that's going to be the end of it. But at the same time, I often think to myself, what does this look like? I mean, I imagine, you know, I keep trying to imagine being back in Iraq or with Sergio, you know, his family went through the, the collapse of the Soviet Union. We often talk about our experiences both in the war and then his experiences um, in the Soviet Union and our experiences working with impoverished communities here in the United States. And I, and I you know, people sort of, in, some people endure through some things in the short term. So in the long term, as you mentioned, human beings might not make it or but will likely not make it. But in the, sh- in the short term or even in the medium term, like what do you think when you think to yourself very practically, all right, it's not going to be just one day that I wake up and I'm gone and everything's gone or I'm dead and so on. But what does that kind of look like for, for different movements? What does that look like for you? I know that's a broad question, but I, I th- think of that very often. Yeah, it really is. And I mean, it's, I understand this reaction of segments of the population, you know, the doomsdayers and the preppers and all of this. And, sure. you know, I, I think, I think the, the bottom line is, and I felt that fear. You know, so I understand that, like, oh, shit, okay, I get my stuff together, storm's coming, you know, where's my tent, where's my food, you know. But in a, in a way, it's all, it is kind of a, a, a natural reaction. But I think, you know, the other key thing is, like, if I'm going to keep my heart open and, and you know, do stuff from that place as opposed to, like, a fear reaction, my reaction's going to be different uh, in a lot of ways, though, it might look the same. I mean, like, for example, what I do is I'm trying to, every every day, I'm like, how can I decrease my carbon footprint? How can I produce more of my own food? You know, I live on some land, and I'm, I've got a greenhouse. I'm growing food. I'm eating kale out of it. I'm growing berries. I have fruit trees. I'm, I'm looking at getting chickens. You know, like, how can I keep, you know, taking care of myself that way? Because that's the best thing I can do for the planet. You know, the more I can eat my own food, grow my own food, travel less, um, do all of that, it's better for the planet. And it just so happens to be that if infrastructure stops working and food stops getting transporting and systems start really breaking down or we have total utter economic collapse, it just so happens that what I'm already doing is going to help me also. I've got a solar-powered house. I've got my own well. I grow a lot of my own food. And I live in a community where there's a ton of people doing the exact same thing. So so that just so happens to kind of overlap with a lot of the stuff that probably a lot of the preppers are doing, which is, you know, which on the surface might look really, really similar. You know, but, I, but one difference would be is that, you know, I'm not stockpiling weapons because, you know, if it comes to that, like, I just assume be taken out. You know, I'm, you know, when it goes Mad Max, like, you know, it's it's over any, <laughs> anyway if it if it gets to be something like that. Right. And so, you know, I, that's a bit of a distraction. I mean, I don't expect it to get like that. It's certainly not up where I live anytime soon. And 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 so, you know, it's just a matter of like how how do I want to live my life? And and but I think that people do need to consider, um, you know, 
where does my food come from? Where does my water come from? Because from just a climate perspective alone with how rapidly things are changing and extreme weather events and abrupt shifts and, and the abrupt temperature shifts and weather pattern shifts that are upon us now, that that is be- going to become a lot more obvious. I mean, when you have NASA releasing a study several years ago that basically said, you know, you remember the dust ball in the middle part of the country? You know, if we look into the future with what climate change is bringing to us, um, multiply that by 30, and that's what that area is ultimately going to probably end up looking like. So, you know, people need to be cognizant of what is coming and where they live. And, you know, and, and it is it's such a, we could talk about this for weeks because, like, sure. What about people that live there and don't have the resources to be able to live, given that, you know, 50% of Americans live paycheck to paycheck? Mm-hmm. And that's a whole other conversation, you know, and then obviously they're going to have a very different reaction to that and what they should they would need to do, and we, we would need to investigate that. Yeah, and this is why this is a fascinating question that I like to, I mean, I say fascinating, but it's also, I, I think, a very real question that, you know, in this context, say where I live, this, you know, I think, look at this sort of veneer of, of civility and so on. And I don't say that because I think that humans are inherently evil or bad, but that in this context, especially in this urban environment, uh, I often think that there's a certain level of peace and stability, even with, I mean, we just had a 15 year old girl who was shot a half mile from where I'm sitting right now, you know, shot and killed the other night. There was a drive by shooting. Um, so you, I don't want to fear monger with people because the news does that already. The The police, to some extent, do that here locally with these kind of events. And so when I think of like prep preparation for the future here, I do worry uh, not maybe so much of a Mad Max scenario, but I do worry about some very serious sort of civil unrest, uh, racial and ethnic segregation that takes place here, and then just the amount of weapons uh, that exist in this country. I mean, I've often sort of compared this place to uh, what could be uh, like the first world version of uh, Syria. That might be a little extreme, but I think, you know, when I think about explaining this to uh, a local activist who is wondering, you know, like, well, how sort of that... uh, what would you say? Sort of an ignorant take on, on people in the Middle East. You know, he would say, oh, you know, that place has just always been a mess or this or that. And I tried to compare him. I said, well, look, imagine if if the Canadians were arming African-Americans, if Latin American countries were arming uh, Latinos in the United States and European nations were arming white people in the United States and all of our infrastructure had been destroyed and there's a lack of food. And so, I mean, I can imagine a place like this. In other words, or a place anywhere that had those kind of uh, components or those ingredients getting very crazy. I mean, so I don't, I try not to go down that path too much because we, I have to keep a certain state of mind just to continue doing the work and not to fall into these dark sort of pits of despair. But at the same time, I do think it's a very real concern about how we organize. So instead of telling people, you know, hey, we're going to go back to the 1940s and everybody's going to be good. I mean, I think the more honest conversation is, here's the reality, here's what we're we're facing, and how do we organize in that context, and how do we sort of prepare more than try and... Uh, well, you still want to create, you still want to be creative, you still want to make new things or new ways of being, new institutions, new relationships, um, but it's hard to give people sort of a bright, hopeful future vision. It's more, hey, we're organizing, but we're organizing to protect, but then also to sort of prepare for what is inevitable. Um, 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I, know, I know there's no answer to that, man. I'm just, that's what I'm saying. I'm just kind of bullshitting thinking about this, not bullshitting, but be, be, you know, bullshitting with you thinking about this. It's easier to talk about it. So I'm like, this, this yeah, is the kind no, of things I, that I, I think about. This is, it's been a fantastic conversation. Part of me is like, Hey, can this be like a 10 hour podcast? <laughs> you know, I mean, because I mean, God, we could unpack every piece of this and just talk for hours. And it, it is, it's fascinating. And you know, it's, I mean, some it's of that so is, practical. I mean, let me just, I don't want to cut in Dar, but just for the folks who are going to listen ahead. to this, I also, because we are facing very re- Okay. So in East Chicago, Indiana, even where I live here in Michigan city, we have 320 kids who tested high for lead. They're all under the age of six years old. In East Chicago, Indiana, which is 40 miles to the west of me, where which also has the BP refinery, which is the largest refinery of tar sands in the Western Hemisphere, that place is a complete disaster. You're talking over 1,000 people who have been had to immediately be moved out of a housing project, the vast majority of whom are black, uh, and they all tested, I mean, ridiculously high, the, not only the, the water levels and their blood levels, but the soil levels and so on. And... And so I don't want folks to just keep hearing, say, you or I, and I know that we understand this, but just so they understand, to keep hearing us say that this is fascinating. It is fascinating, but at the same time, I ask you those questions, and I think of these reflections in a very real and practical way um, in terms of, you know, what, what, is the, what does that mean? That should have an impact on how we organize, um, those of us who are organizing. So anyway, I just wanted to throw that out there for people who will hear this. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And I'd be clear too, like, I'm not trying to minimize, uh, you you know, the tragedies that are happening every day on all these different levels at all. I mean, it's just kind of like waxing philosophical about it from time to time. Um, And um, yeah, I think, I think that people need to understand that I, I, I think that part of thinking, oh, well, it can never get that bad here. That's never, never going to happen here. Whoever's thinking that, whether they're on the right or, you know, in a privileged position on, on the left, like, I think that's a symptom of American exceptionalism. It's another way that that's kind of rearing its ugly head that, oh, well, we're different, we're special, that could never really happen here. And, you know, and I, I've been in Baghdad and seen, look, when you have complete collapse of government, you know, where essentially, you know, the, the government of Iraq for the longest time through the occupation, like they couldn't even get the garbage picked up around all the parts of Baghdad. That's how effective that government was, you know, and, and that, you know, total breakdown, total security breakdown. And then, you know, the U S does divide and conquer and pits the Sunni against Shia and it starts dividing out neighborhoods and literally start building walls between them. You know, guess what? That never happened under Saddam that, you know, that was a, that was an American imposed empire tactic of divide and conquer and it was extremely effective like let's now come you know we we supported the sunnis up until saddam didn't behave so let's get rid of them and put in a shia saddam and then now all the shia have license to go after all the sunnis and it's payback time so the sunnis have to start basically forming their own militias and policing their own neighborhoods and providing their own electricity and their own food and the Shia are doing the same, but with some of them who have government support. You know, I mean, there's all this factionalization and turning people against each other, and, and people have to, in a very real way, start organizing for their own survival. And that's happening in so many countries now around the planet. I mean, I'm only using Iraq as an example because that's what I saw firsthand. Mm-hmm. And if people think, you know, guess what? In certain parts of the, of the U.S. now, in certain neighborhoods, may, that's already probably happening. 
you know, and, and we're talking about it theoretically, while for a lot of people, that's their daily life. You know, some iteration of that. I'm not being, you know, that literal, but some, some iteration no, of that. No, well, I'm thinking of uh, Parenti's latest book, The Tropic of Chaos. I'm thinking Bingo. of Bingo, right. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So, and that's only going to increase, you know, and that will become more of a reality across this country, too, as parts of it become um, less, less and less habitable because of lack of water or extreme weather events or drought or, or what have you. So that's, that's another factor at play. As, as well well i've almost taken an hour of your day and like i like you said earlier man i could take many hours of your day but uh i won't do that <laughs> or i won't uh i won't subject our listeners to hearing us anymore but uh i think that it has been very very fascinating talking to you man and every time i speak with you it's you know you have grown and your work has grown and your perspective and there's so many events coming up that i've been asked to speak at in the next couple of months that this was actually a really good reset button for me to uh, sort of reprioritize and, and recategorize what's important and what's not. And to, you know, when you get into this day-to-day organizing, you can fall into that petty bullshit. You know, you can fall into that egoism. You can, I think like all of us can in whatever facet of our life we're talking about, but it's really important to reset and, and come back to grips with what's important and why, you know, why it is that we do this work. So thank you for this conversation, man. Yeah, that's a great point, Vince, and that's a great note for us to go out on. And I, I too, have thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. I mean, if, if all my interviews were like this, I'd probably be doing a whole lot more, more of them than I'm, I'm willing to do. And, you know, and I think that's it. It's like, you know, we have to all remember on a regular basis, why am I doing this work? You know, why do I care? And get down into the caring and the heart pieces of that and then let those pieces be what really informs our work and our actions. Because if it's not coming from our heart, it's coming from the wrong place, and, and our actions are going to be reflective of that. And it's going to play out in a lot of wonky and usually negative ways, and that's where we can get really off track and get caught up in power games and money and all, jealousy and all that kind of stuff. And the reality is if I'm really, really working for the planet, you know, what is my motivation? You know, and 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 let that be what informs my work. Because more than ever, um, as things keep getting worse and things keep degrading and collapsing and falling apart, um, you know, there's going to be more violence and strife and suffering and desperation. And at that time, it's never going to be more important for us to to keep our hearts open and really make making sure that we're we're coming from the right place with everything that we do. Absolutely, man. Well, thank you again. I appreciate it. My pleasure, Vince, and I'd love to talk again before long. Yeah, we will, man. Take care and best of luck with everything you're doing, and and I will try and keep in touch uh, more than I have. You too, Vince. Thanks a lot. All right, see ya. In what we're doing now, we are getting to a feel of the world that is neither organic nor mechanical. Simply...